Uh, if you have Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We've only got a couple weeks left uh, to close out the book of 1 Corinthians. We've been in this study now for several months and um, bringing it to a close here in these weeks. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bible, Bibles that are under your chair, page 959 uh, is where that starts, and then it'll flip over to the next page uh, relatively quickly. But I mentioned last week, if you were here, um, we had no idea where we would find ourselves in our sermon series, in our teaching schedule, if and when we had our first service in this new facility. And in the providence of God, it ended up just being that we were talking about spiritual gifts, which I think is really helpful because the temptation is for us to, when we have our own building, to kind of feel like we've arrived or we can settle down or slow down in some capacity. And what Paul says actually about spiritual gifts is we have, we have these things that we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to use for the benefit of others, for the common good, And so not to hold back, not to withhold those gifts, but to find opportunities to use them as well as receive the gifts of others. Well, again today, and I wish we had planned it this way. I wish I could say we're smart enough to plan the schedule out this way. We're not. It just so happens that today we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians 13, which is often referred to as uh, the love chapter of Paul's writings. Now, perhaps you heard we had an election this past week. Perhaps you're familiar with that, that that happened on Tuesday. Uh, And perhaps you are as surprised as I was about the outcome of that election. Far less surprising, although I'm lamenting it and perhaps many of you are lamenting it this week, is how polarized our nation continues to be in these days since that election. It was a polarizing, incendiary kind of campaign. It has been for the last six months, maybe even longer than that, that resulted in a polarizing, incendiary person being elected to the office of president. So whatever your personal opinions are on the matter, at least don't be surprised by the toxicity that continues to exist and will continue to persist for at least some time in our culture. In John 13, uh, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death. He's preparing them for what life and what leading the church is going to look like after he's no longer around. And as he's doing that, he says this. He says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the world will know Christians by their love. And I would submit to you, friends, that this is a moment in our society where that needs to be far more than words for us. That this is a moment when the world really needs to witness and to experience Christian love in all of its Holy Spirit-empowered, culture-redefining, heart-transforming power. Because there are a lot of people in our society right now who are filled with fear and overwhelmed with worry, skepticism, and cynicism. Particularly people who are immigrants, people who are Muslim, non-white citizens of the United States, members of or advocates for the LGBTQ community. And if you didn't vote for Donald Trump, then that probably at least makes some kind of sense to you, why people are fearful and anxious and worried. If you did vote for Donald Trump, whether or not that makes sense to you, whether or not you understand that, then at a minimum, love will call you to acknowledge that this is what a large number of your fellow human being, image bearers of God, are experiencing right now. Even if for you it just seems like or feels like sore losing, 
right? If, you, if your primary concern, if our primary concern as Christians is the kingdom of God, then however valid others' concerns or fears are, we care. We care about the hearts and souls of fellow image bearers. We care about what other people experience in this life. Now what's especially relevant for many of us in the room, one of the stats that's being consumed in these days since the election is that the overwhelming majority, something like 80% of white evangelical Christians voted for Donald Trump. And we've got to give people some credit. These men and women likely do not share all of his views on everything, do not affirm uh, or excuse everything he's said and done in the past. It's reductionistic to ignore the myriad variables that are at play for why people vote the way that they vote. But what we need to understand is that broadly, culturally speaking, most people don't care about the nuance. They'll just associate white evangelical Christianity with Donald Trump. And I would submit to you that, you know, God help us, that is not an association that we should be content with without qualification. It's not an association we can be, con- we can be content with. Right? When, when earlier in the whole process, the candidates were asked about like, what their religious affiliation was, and Donald Trump said Presbyterian, I was like, come on, really? Really? Like, as someone that studied with Presbyterians is largely Presbyterian in my, in my background, in my expression of, of Christianity, it was kind of like losing Russian roulette. You know, it's like he just spun a wheel and picked, I think, and, and I lost in that, and other Presbyterians did too. So, so for all of you fellow white evangelical Christians, which is many of us in this room, what will you do, right? For all of us, whether you're white evangelical Christian or not, for all of us, what will it look like to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in a cultural moment where people are associating the Christian faith with the kinds of vitriol, hatred, anger that have come from the mouth of our president-elect in the past six months. What will we do? The cross of Jesus Christ is about love. And this is love, the Apostle John writes. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the propitiation, right? The the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins. So also, we ought to love one another. As Paul writes in our text today, the way of love is a more excellent way. And so my prayer for us leading up to this and then, and then going from here later today is that in this post-election, angry, arrogant, hostile, divided land in which we live, that if there is hatred in our hearts for fellow image bearers of God, whatever the reason for that hatred, that the Spirit of God would nail that to the cross of Christ's love. That if there is bias and prejudice in our hearts, that the Spirit of God would nail that to the cross of Christ's love. And that whatever and wherever our lives are characterized by laziness or by sins of omission, a failure to speak up, a failure to act on behalf of the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized, that we would own our share, even a disproportionately large share, of this burden to live out a way of love in the days and months and years that follow. So with eyes that long to see and ears that long to hear, let's listen now to this book that we love. 1 Corinthians 13. I'll start at the very end of chapter 12 and then read the the entire chapter of 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but, sorry, let me start back one more. And I will show you still a still more excellent way. 
If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. God, our Father, compel us all to simply take you at your word. Illumine and guide us with the Holy Spirit, we pray. And do not let us evade your word without being caught by its promises and its powerful joy. We pray this for our sake, Father, and for those whom we love. In the name of Jesus, amen. So 1 Corinthians 13, these are perhaps familiar words. Uh, They are beautiful words. Christians, non-Christians alike have these words read at weddings. They tug at this deep longing that we have in each of our hearts to both experience this kind of love from other people and then offer this kind of love as well. Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, and if you've been with us throughout this study, you're, you're aware of this. It's filled with a lot of difficult words, teachings on difficult topics. He's talking about how to deal with sexual immorality that exists in the church and the differences between men and women. And he's talking about um, how people are divided for a myriad number of reasons. But there's a compelling beauty simply stated in what he writes in chapter 13. What often is missed about 1 Corinthians 13, though, is the context for it. In context, love is the framework in which spiritual gifts are meant to be exercised. So chapter 12 is about the unity and diversity of these gifts that the Holy Spirit empowers in those who follow Christ. Chapter 14 is about how to practice those gifts together in the gathered worship of God's people. 13 kind of feels like this interlude, kind of feels a little bit maybe out of place, but really, it's giving the framework for how to use spiritual gifts. Right? Spiritual gifts are important, they are good, But what Paul says here is that the way of love is a more excellent way. And over and against the Corinthians' view, to be a spiritual person is not primarily about what gifts you have from the Holy Spirit. To be spiritual primarily is to have the Holy Spirit. And then through the Spirit's work to increasingly grow in holiness, to grow in Christ-likeness, which is evidenced by a life of love. So love is really the the real essence of what it means to be a spiritual person. Love is the more excellent way. 
And we'll look at Paul's words here in three parts. The primacy of love, the personality of love, and the permanence of love. Primacy of love, personality of love, permanence of love. So first, let's talk about the primacy of love. Here's really the summary of the first three verses of of Paul's letter here. You can have the most or the best spiritual gifts. You can live the most generous and sacrificial life, and it can be all for nothing. It can be all for nothing. The Corinthians, as we've seen, are using their spiritual gifts to jockey for position. They're using their spiritual gifts to prove themselves, to elevate themselves above one another. And so Paul mentions some of the same gifts that he's already referred to in chapter 12. Tongues, prophecy, discernment, knowledge, and faith. And he says the only thing that gives any of these gifts worth and value is when they are practiced in love. And likewise, the most selfless acts, giving away all that you have, giving up your very body, can be done without love and it gains you nothing. It profits you nothing. Paul is making this really critical correction that not only do the Corinthians need, but we need as well. Right? The gifts, the spiritual gifts, are not the primary sign of the Holy Spirit. Right? Christian love is. When we think about the Holy Spirit, we tend to associate it with more of a charismatic Pentecostal type churches. We think about the spiritual gifts. But the Holy Spirit really fundamentally is about transforming us completely and empowering us to live lives of love as we are united with Christ. Right? Love is more fundamental than gifts for what it means to have the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not meant to be an either-or thing. It's really both love and gifts that evidence the presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Jesus' followers. But what Paul is making really clear here is that love is primary. Without love, your spiritual gifts will do you about as much good as your bank account does you on the day that you die. So the question for us is this. Where are we prone to do exactly what the Corinthians are doing? Where are we tempted to skew the work of the Holy Spirit to view our gifts and actions as the primary measure of spiritual significance and what it means to be spiritual? Is it your generosity, giving away what you have and thinking that the more you give away, the more spiritual you are? If that's you, your motto might be, he who gives the most wins. Is it your knowledge of scripture or theology? Because you've memorized the most, because you have the greatest working knowledge, you are the varsity Christian, everybody else is on the JV team. Maybe your motto is, she who knows the most wins. Is it your service? He who works harder or she who shows up more than everybody else does to serve wins. Is it your wisdom and your discernment? Or is it your teaching? You you give people the best advice and counsel uh, for their lives and what they're going through. You have the most eloquent and timely words. It's actually really embarrassing to, to admit this and to come to terms with this as I was studying this myself. There are times when I am talking with people, and it can be in a variety of settings. It can be in a small group, you know, home group kind of setting. It can be face-to-face across the table where I'm speaking with them and something comes out of my mouth that is somewhat eloquent and wise. And all of a sudden, my attention can get drawn away from that person and onto how good those words just sounded that came out of my mouth. Right? Maybe you can't ever relate to that. That's me. That's part of how I skew this. What I need from the Holy Spirit in that moment is not affirmation of my gifts, like, yes, Matt, I've gifted you in this. Be affirmed in that. What I need is conviction that says, hey, 
the point of this is not about the quality of your words. The point of this is love for that person, that real person sitting across the table from you. Right? If it's just good words, that makes me a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That makes me all about a lot of show and not a lot of substance. To be empowered by the Holy Spirit is primarily about love. Love that will, in the first place, obliterate our concern with being more spiritually significant than others. Love that will free us to both offer our gifts to others without ulterior motive, without trying to prove ourselves, and receive spiritual gifts from others without hesitation, uh, without reservation, without it stirring up insecurity in us. Love is this more excellent way. Second, let's consider the personality of love. Verses 4 through 7, Paul describes the, the, the personality or the character or nature of love. And he does this from both the positive vantage point and the negative, both what love is and what love does and what love is not and what love does not do. So I want to touch on these things just briefly as we make our way through. First, he says love is patient and kind. And some will suggest, and you might read this in, in various books or commentaries, some will suggest that patience is the passive expression of love, whereas kindness is the active expression. But I think those of us who have actually had to be patient with another person know there's nothing passive about patience. There's nothing passive about it at all. This is actually one of the places in the Bible that I prefer other translations, especially those that translate the phrase, love suffers long. If you have an older translation of Scripture, that's the way that word is translated. Love suffers long. And there's a huge difference between that and tolerance, right? Tolerance is something, you can be passive and tolerate somebody, but to be patient with another person, to suffer long, is to forbear that person's sins. It's to forbear their shortcomings. It's to endure their messiness. It's to suffer long as the anvil on which God is hammering out their imperfections. Patience is an active waiting. It's an active preparation to respond to that person when the opportunities present themselves. Right, so it is very much active. And likewise, love is actively kind. Right? It's considerate. It proactively considers the needs of others above self. Love does not envy or boast, is what Paul says next. Envy and boasting are really at the root of all of these divisions that are happening in the church in Corinth. Who's the better speaker? Who's the better leader? Who has the better spiritual gifts? Right? Envy and boasting what they do at their root, they draw attention to ourselves. E- envy by what we lack, I don't have that and that person does, so I envy them. Or boasting by what we do possess, I have that, that person doesn't, therefore I'm better than them. Either way, these are incompatible with love. Love is not arrogant or rude. Uh, rudeness literally means to behave shamefully or disgracefully. And a little earlier in his letter, Paul rebukes the, the rich Corinthians, the haves, in this society, for shaming the have-nots during the celebration of the Lord's Supper. They show up earlier because they don't have to work quite as long. They bring more food, they bring better food because they can afford it. The the have-nots can't do that. And so the Lord's Supper, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, actually becomes a display of the division between them rather than the unity that they have in the gospel. What we see here, love is not arrogant or rude. Love will not necessarily do away with distinctions between people but it doesn't shame people for the distinctions. 
Love does not insist on its own way, is what Paul says next. Right? It seeks the good of others. And all along, Paul is saying here, spiritual gifts aren't for building up ourselves. They're for the common good. They're for building up others in the body of Christ. As Paul argued early in the letter about meat sacrifice to idols, because we don't have to prove ourselves, because we don't have to show ourselves superior, we're actually freed by the gospel to value deference over preference. We can defer to other people's needs rather than our own preferences. And it frees us to prioritize other people, not ourselves. And it frees us to demonstrate love rather than superiority. Love is not irritable or resentful. Right, so love has a long fuse. It doesn't get angry quickly or easily. And love isn't resentful, or as another version translates it, it keeps no records of wrongs. So not only does love patiently endure the sin and shortcomings of others, it also, as it does that, doesn't become bitter about having to do so. It suffers long without holding things over someone else's head. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And actually, as I was reading it and preparing for this week, reflecting in my own heart about what's the call on my life as a Christian in light of where we are in this cultural moment, this is the part that really jumped out to me. And it's not that I'm wanting to elevate this this part of Paul's words or part of Scripture above any others. Just for whatever reason, this is the part that really stood out to me this week as I was reading this text. I think it has a lot of relevance for the cultural moment in which we find ourselves. If you and I are going to be faithful to Jesus, that means that we should find ourselves homeless when it comes to political parties. We should find ourselves homeless. Regardless of how you vote, there should always be some things about your candidate, about your party, that make you uncomfortable as a follower of Jesus Christ. And what Paul says here is love rejoices with the truth. Love does not rejoice with the Republican Party platform. Love does not rejoice with the Democratic Party platform. Love does not rejoice with the Libertarian or the Green or the Constitutionalist or whatever other party platform. If we feel too at home with one party or another, the temptation is going to be for us to excuse or minimize wrongdoing and to obscure the truth for the sake of the candidate or party with which we are affiliating ourselves. But that's the opposite of the personality of love that Paul's describing here. He's saying love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It doesn't celebrate evil. It rejoices with the truth. And this is always the case, but especially right now, the world around us needs to see love displayed publicly by followers of Jesus, by both what we renounce and what we rejoice in. An author, uh, speaker named Russell Moore put it this week this way. He said, We need to maintain a prophetic clarity that is willing to call to repentance everything that is unjust and anti-Christ, whether that's the abortion culture, the divorce culture, or the racism, nativism culture. We can be the people who tell the truth whether it helps or hurts our so-called allies or our so-called enemies. So I know, and I think most reasonable people know, there are complex, nuanced reasons for why you vote the way you vote. That is what it is. But now the order of the day for us as Christians is to demonstrate the nuance by your love. 
demonstrate the nuance. I know it's complex. I know it's nuanced. Now the call is to demonstrate the nuance. Demonstrate that with a love that renounces what is evil and rejoices with truth. So if you voted for Donald Trump, then demonstrate the nuance that it's not okay to demean and humiliate groups of people. Demonstrate the nuance that it's not okay to disrespect and devalue women. Demonstrate the nuance that you cannot be a faithful Christian and racist or xenophobic at the same time. Demonstrate the nuance that the gospel is for all people, and in the head-to-head comparison of the importance of the gospel being proclaimed to every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, and your comfort and safety, the gospel wins every single time. Every single time. If you voted for Hillary Clinton, then demonstrate the nuance that you that you, it is wildly inconsistent for someone to advertise themselves as a lifelong advocate for children and then support laws that permit the legal extermination of millions of them. Demonstrate the nuance that you're not solely dependent upon your government or your candidate being in power for you to help and care for and love marginalized and oppressed peoples. You don't have to have your party or your person there to do that. Love them anyway, love people anyway, at even greater cost to yourself. If you voted third party, or you didn't vote at all, then demonstrate the nuance that you're not trying to pull a Pontius Pilate and wash your hands of the whole thing. As a Christian, you're responsible to seek the peace and the thriving of this place that God has put you. So demonstrate that you are in, and demonstrate that you care. What is the personality of love? Ultimately, the personality of love is God himself. As the Apostle John says, God is love. He is the embodiment of it, right? God's love is not an abstraction. It's not just a list of generalities. It has taken on flesh in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And nowhere do we see love demonstrated more clearly than Jesus' sacrificial death. So Paul's emphasis here is on what we're to do. Right, how we are called to love. But in order to love this way, we have to first recognize that this is the way we ourselves have been loved. How can you and I possibly love other people with this love Paul describes, a love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things? It's because in Christ, that is how you have been loved by God. Patiently, kindly, humbly, shame-eradicating, not shame-inducing, a selfless, forgiving, evil-obliterating, truth-exalting love. By that love, we are transformed. We are compelled to love others with the same love that we have received. So this more excellent way of love is actually, first and foremost, what you and I are caught up into as part of God's redemptive work. And as we are caught up into it, as we experience it ourselves, then and only then are we able to emulate it, to live out this personality of love in our relationships with other people. Okay, lastly, let's talk about the permanence of love. Spiritual gifts are important. And anything that would, that would lead us away from thinking so is not what Paul's getting at here in 1 Corinthians 13. Spiritual gifts are important, they are significant, they are essential in building up the church and serving in the world. But what Paul says here is that they are finite. And in that sense, spiritual gifts are a little bit like scaffolding. 
right? If you've ever seen an old building refurbished or a new building constructed, you know how important scaffolding is. But at the end of the day, no one is left standing back admiring the scaffolding. It fulfills its purpose, and then it's taken down, and at the end, we're left admiring what has actually been the point all along, which is the permanent structure. And what Paul is saying here is that love is that permanent thing. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are for this era, the time between the first and second comings of Christ. But he says, when the perfect comes, meaning the perfect fulfillment of God's making all things new in Christ, the partial things pass away. So the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the things that Paul's talking about in these chapters, the gifts are for now. Love is for both now and later, forever. And Paul uses a couple analogies to illustrate this. One is the transition from childhood to adulthood. And he's not so much saying there that there's a difference between the immaturity of childhood and the maturity of adulthood. What he's saying is that just a, there's a difference between the present and the future. Right? We don't fault a child for being a child. We don't fault the child for being a child. Similarly, it's good for us to cultivate and exercise our spiritual gifts. To actually neglect our spiritual gifts would be as odd as a five-year-old skipping over childhood and working a -a 50-hour-a-week job. Spiritual gifts, exercise, and love, that is what is right for this moment in time. It's just that that is not what will last and endure forever. The other analogy that Paul uses here is a mirror. And what he's saying there is that the best that you and I can perceive God's kingdom right now is a dim reflection. It's a dim reflection. And the spiritual gifts, one of the things that they will do, both as we offer what we have and we receive what others have, that will encourage and nurture our faith. And it will encourage and nurture our faith while it is still faith. While it is still faith. But if, as the author of Hebrews says, that faith is the hope of things not seen, then on the day that we do see Jesus, And no longer do we see dimly, but we see face to face. On that day, faith becomes sight. And when it does, we no longer need the partial, temporary scaffolding of spiritual gifts to nurture and encourage our faith. We will instead have the full substance of Jesus himself. We will know Jesus fully, even as right now we are fully known by him. One of my favorite uh, hymns, and we've sung it here before, is called Jesus, I My Cross Have Taken. The last verse in that song goes like this. Soon shall close thy earthly mission. Swift shall pass thy pilgrim days. Hope shall change to glad fruition. Faith to sight and prayer to praise. Paul says at the close of this chapter, faith, hope, and love are central to our lives as Christians. But because faith becomes sight, and because hope becomes fruition, the greatest, the eternal call on the Christian life is love. So as we consider these things, as we consider how we have been loved by Jesus, the call for us today would be to become people who love to be people who love. May we be people who love, who always use the gifts that God has given us within this framework of love. 
that we would always be people who love with the very same love that we ourselves have received. And as you receive and depend upon the love that Jesus has shown you and that you and has shown you specifically in his death and his resurrection, I'm going to ask you to embody this kind of love this week. So really practically, pick one way. Start small. Pick one way that you can this week, maybe in even the next couple days, demonstrate the nuance of your politics and the primacy of your love. Pick one way you can do that as someone who represents the kingdom of God in this world. Right? Renounce something that is evil. Rejoice in something that is true and good. Go have a long conversation with someone who voted differently than you did, maybe even someone that you're at odds with because of that. Go sit with someone in our community who has expressed fear and sorrow over the current state of our nation. As an author named Paul Miller says, love often doesn't erase worries. It just shifts them to a different set of shoulders, our own. Go love someone like that in this region, in your neighborhood, in your, in your workplace. Right? This is the way of love. And it is today and it will forever be the more excellent way. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we recognize that we cannot possibly love this way unless you transform us to do that. And you have shown us this same kind of love that Paul describes here. You have loved us with this kind of love. We are caught up into the more excellent way of love. We pray that that would continue to transform us, that it would make us like you in your love for us, and that we would love others well. Jesus, I confess, um, I'm overwhelmed with the specifics of how to respond in this cultural moment. And yet I'm grateful to you that you have given us this call on our lives to respond with love. And I pray that you would lead us and guide us to use our opportunities, our time, our gifts, everything that you have given us for the good of others in genuine love. I pray, Jesus, that the world would see our love for one another, would see our love for your people, people created in your image, and that the world would know that we are Christians because of that. Help us, empower us by your Spirit. Pray we would continue to see this is not a moment for us to withhold our gifts and to shut down and hide, but to be present and engaged, loving the people and the world that you love. I pray this all in your name. Amen.